You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode, we have two things for you. First, recently I gave a lecture. It was one half of a debate. It was entitled, Is Precision Oncology Generating Patient Benefit or Is It Just Hype? I took the position that it's generating some benefit, but it is mostly unrepentant hype. And today, I figured, let's do something a little bit different. Let me take you through my side of the argument, why it is some benefit, but mostly hype. So that's going to be the first part of the episode. Then, we have special guest, Dr. Andre Vandross, back by popular demand. He's going to talk about mentorship. What were the experiences in his career that were good mentoring, and what were the experiences that were less than desired? So, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode, and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter, or email us plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your request. Okay, as I said, many listeners will know I'm always uncomfortable recording other people. I feel like that's not really uh, something I'm uh, allowed to do, and if I wanted to do that, I would have to have conversations with them beforehand, and I would have to do it in a setting where they did not feel any pressure to say yes or no. And I don't always have the time to do that in my, in my day-to-day, and I often forget to do that. But recently I was asked to participate in this uh, discussion, this debate about precision oncology. And I wanted to take the arguments I'd formulated for my position and go through them with you at a slower pace. I felt like there's so much in the media about this topic, so much misunderstanding, so much that just isn't quite right. Um, Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Hall for MIT Technology Review. They did a nice article that I thought you know, pretty fairly captured my thinking about precision oncology. Um, In what follows, I will try to unpack far beyond that article and try to give you a lot more background. So, is precision oncology generating patient benefit or just hype? I will argue the position there is some benefit here, uh, but it is mostly unrepentant hype. So, I started off by and I'm literally going through a slide deck while I give this lecture to you, so it's, it's, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid form, so go ahead and give us feedback at plenary session. Hype. What is hype? Hype means to promote or publicize a product or idea intensively, often exaggerating its importance or benefits. And I've been going to ASCO annual meetings for many, many years now, and I've had a chance to see many, many lectures on oncology, and I can tell you that I believe there's a lot of hype in this space. So. After I defined hype, I I showed a slide here. This is from a paper that uh, Robert Peter Gale and I published in ASCO Post. And it was entitled, What Precisely is Precision Oncology and Will It Work? And it came out in January of 2017. And before we delved into this topic, we just wanted to set the record straight. What is precision oncology? And I'm not going to go with some NIH consensus definition where they say precision oncology means anything you do that takes into account any individual characteristics of any patient ever at any time in history. That's all precision oncology. That's a very foolish definition. I'll tell you why. Your definition 
of this new thing we're talking about and getting excited about cannot include every single thing that's been done for 4,000 years, okay? Doctors, since the time of the ancient Greeks, took into account the particular individual in front of them, their hopes, their desires, their symptoms, their feelings, in their treatment recommendations. That is nothing new. We've always done that. That's everything in biomedicine. We always do that. For precision oncology to actually be something we can have a conversation about, it has to be something that is new and exciting that we're talking about more and more. That's the only way to make the definition useful. So, you know, before we argue for that definition, we actually just wanted to look in the literature and say, when people use this term, what do they actually mean? What is the vernacular? And we picked three periods of time. The first period of time was 2005 to 2010. Um, this period of time spans a few years, and we had to do that because the phrase precision oncology was not used that often in those years. So to get a set of articles where people use the phrase, it took a few years. The next time period we looked at was 2013, and the last time period we looked at it was 2016. And I think across these time periods we looked at, and it's been a while since I did this, so I'm kind of forgetting, but maybe 50 or 100 articles, and we coded authors in the biomedical literature using the term precision oncology, and we asked, what do they mean by that? Okay, let me take you through that. So between 2005 and 2010, when they used this word, they mostly meant targeted therapy. It was about 53%. Drugs like Gleevec, which would hit a target um, in cancer cells, ideally a target that was unique to cancer cells. But they also meant some rather dirty TKIs like serafinib, et cetera, between 2005 and 2010. One quarter of the, of the usage of the language in those years was the use of a biomarker to delineate subgroups. What do I mean by that? That's the use of RAS testing to decide who would benefit from cetuximab in colorectal cancer, or the use of EGFR mutation analysis to decide who will benefit from gefitinib or allotinib in lung cancer. So this is the use of a biomarker within a tumor type to decide who would benefit from some treatment versus who would not benefit from that treatment. That was about a quarter. Those were the two most common usages of precision oncology. Um, coming in third was the use of omics to guide therapy, such as the use of broad genomic sequencing or broad transcriptomics to decide what treatments to give in a tissue agnostic fashion. And, and hang on to that idea, because that idea is going to gain prominence. Fast forward to 2013. By 2013, precision oncology, meaning targeted therapy, had declined dramatically in popularity, only account for 7% of articles we looked at. And meanwhile, the use of a biomarker to delineate subgroups had gained rapid traction. That was about 50%. And about 30% was this new emerging idea, which was the use of broad next-generation sequencing to identify targetable molecular alterations and to prescribe therapy based on those alterations irrespective of the tissue of origin. In other words, it doesn't matter if you have bladder cancer or colon cancer or pancreatic cancer. If you have an FGFR mutation, we're going to give you drug X. And if you have a EGFR mutation, we're going to give you drug Y. It was this idea that was gaining prominence in 2013. Fast forward to 2016, which was the last year we looked at when we published our paper, which was January 2017, and the use of broad omics or next-generation sequencing of large gene panels to identify targetable alterations in tumors irrespective of tissue of origin, that became synonymous with precision oncology. That accounted for 80% of the usage. No longer was this term used that much to describe the use of a biomarker to delineate subgroups within a tumor type. And targeted therapy, just regular old targeted therapy, was no longer synonymous with precision oncology. So when I started doing a lot of the work in precision oncology, being a little bit critical of how hype had outpaced data, 
This is what I was mostly talking about. I was talking about the use of broad transcriptomics, genomics to prescribe therapy irrespective of tissue of origin. I'm still highly critical of that particular practice, but I'll tell you what I wasn't talking about. I wasn't talking about tamoxifen for breast cancer, okay? I think no one who was using precision oncology in all these years was ever talking about tamoxifen for breast cancer. We used tamoxifen for breast cancer based on our understanding of hormone receptor signaling, based on epidemiological evidence, based on a wealth of data that had gone back from the time of Charles Huggins. Um, what we didn't use was whole genome sequencing to guide the use of tamoxifen. So I actually think it's disingenuous that now in 2018, people are trying to lump things in with precision oncology. You know, paclitaxel is an exquisitely potent inhibitor of tubulin, the protein, the, cell, the cytoskeletal protein. So is it not precision oncology? In fact, if anything, paclitaxel is more targeted for its target than mitostorin is targeted for FLT3, okay? But obviously, that's not what we mean by precision oncology. Precision oncology has become synonymous with the use of genomics and genomic therapy. Okay, let's be honest about what we're actually debating. And if you don't wanna be honest about it and you wanna say everything's precision oncology, then I'm gonna have to hand you over uh, the white flag of surrender and say, look, you're right. If everything is precision oncology, then I will concede that some things have worked. So yes, it has worked. Okay, it's worked because some things have worked and everything is this. Okay, but that's not a useful definition. For definitions to be useful, they have to demarcate what we're actually talking about and what actually is happening and what actually people are debating and commenting on. That's a useful definition. Anyway, I could go on and on about this, but I'll move on. <clears throat> I wanted to start by proving that there's hype in this space. So I started by saying, here are the things we hear. And these are all things I've heard for many years at many conferences by many speakers. Although I could name names, but I'm not going to right now. I've heard this. We will no longer use histology to define cancer. We will use mutations. Every individual patient will be eligible for one or combination of targeted drugs. Finally, we are accelerating science. We're seeing exponential growth. We're reaching an inflection point in genome-driven cancer medicine, in precision oncology. We are picking up the pace. These are the things you hear. I show a graphic that was put out by the MD Anderson. This graphic on the left shows 12 hypothetical patients. It shows them marching over to the right, and they all undergo molecular profiling. Then suddenly, a patient in the upper left, a patient in the middle, and a patient in the lower right are all color-coded red. And a patient in the upper right, and in the middle, and in the lower left are color-coded green. And then, on the rightmost, we see that these patients who started out so far apart are found to have the same mutation and all given the red pill or the green pill or the yellow pill. And every single patient depicted here gets some pill. And it's all personalized cancer therapy. That's the title of the graphic. And it makes it look seductive and good. And it makes it look like this is the future of medicine. And who would not want a therapy precisely chosen for their specific tumor? Then I show the page of the New York Times Magazine, an article called The Improvisational Oncologist by Dr. Mukherjee. This is an article that, um, I'll be honest, I, don't, I frankly don't like. I think it's, um, it, um, it adds to the hype. And I, and I started with a quote. I said, this is a quote from the article. We no longer have to treat cancer only with the blunt response of standard protocols. Instead, we are trying to assess the particular personality and temperament of an individual illness so that we can tailor a response with extreme precision. So that's the idea. It's about assessing the particular personality and temperament of the individual cancer. So it sounds quite seductive. 
But I'm going to try to argue in what follows that while there is some benefit here to the use of broad genomic sequencing and screening and assigning therapies based on that, it is mostly hype. I frame my talk in three parts. Um, I want to give benefit of the doubt to people who do not want to use the definition that we found was the vernacular in 2016, people who want to drift slightly beyond it, people who want to say that it isn't just NGS and relapse refractory cancers, precision oncology is more than that. So I, I said, let's just say precision oncology is three categories. I'm not willing to go as broad as saying, you know, castration for prostate cancers, precision oncology. I know some people might want to say that. I'm not willing to go that far, but I'm willing to go a little bit further just for the sake of argument. So let's first say any FDA approved therapy where you test for molecular alteration or genetic alteration and you prescribe therapy that hits that genetic alteration, I'm willing to concede that that is precision oncology. I'm willing to concede every basket study where you take patients with tumors of diverse histology, you find they all have the same mutation and you prescribe one drug. I'm willing to concede that is all precision oncology. And then the third category is this thing I'm talking about, the broad use of NGS, large 50 plus, 100 plus, 300 plus whole exome gene panels to prescribe therapy in relapse refractory tumors like F1CDX. So let's start with the FDA-approved therapies. We test for genetic mutation, and then we target that genetic mutation. So just last year, oh, no, not just last year, just this year in April, boy, time flies. Uh, John Markhart, Emerson Chen, and I published in JAM Oncology estimation of the percent of US cancer patients who benefit from genome-driven oncology. So what we did was very simple. We said, of all the people who will pass away in America this year, in 2018, what percent of them have a mutation for which there is an FDA-approved drug that hits it? And of that, what percent will have tumor shrinkage, which we took as a surrogate for benefiting from that drug? Here's what we found. The first thing, if you assume that every cancer patient with all the appropriate tumor types are appropriately tested, and if you assume that they all can get these drugs, which are very, very costly, and, and we know both of these assumptions are not true, by the way, so this is a very favorable assumption. If you assume both those things, we found that 92% of U.S. cancer patients who will die this year of cancer are not eligible for any genomic therapies. Only 8.8% are eligible for these drugs. Some people have pointed out, since this paper was published, that that's what we always thought. Nobody ever thought it was more than 8%. We always thought it was around 8%, 15%. We never thought it was higher. I would say that those people are being quite disingenuous. I have attended many, many lectures for many, many years, and I've listened to so much rhetoric. And I would say, of everyone who listened to all that rhetoric, there was not a single person in the audience who felt 8% of cancer patients would be eligible for these drugs and 92% would not be eligible. I think we walked away from those talks thinking, boy, the majority of people must be eligible for these drugs. It's got to be over 50%. That's the way the rhetoric was constructed. And if people want to pretend that that wasn't the way the rhetoric was constructed, I would say they're being dishonest because they either didn't attend those talks, they have a foggy memory. And I know for a fact that when people are confronted confronted with information that contradicts what they once believed, they so easily can revise in their mind that they always knew this all along. This is sort of an eternal truth of human nature. When you're confronted with something that contradicts your thinking, you just think, well, I've always thought this, and you revise your thinking. So it's sad, but you know that's the reality. If that's what winning looks like, then I'm willing to take it. The next thing we looked at was, and I'm showing a figure from the paper, what was the median response rate? 
response, you know, this means that you've had cancer shrink beyond some arbitrary threshold. It's not the best measure of how well drugs are. Obviously, overall survival and quality of life improvements in randomized trials are. Unfortunately, in this space, because of exuberance, we have very little randomization. So, you know, this is a fair sort of approximation, maybe best case scenario of who might be benefiting. And we find that the median response rate was 54% of these drugs. That's not bad. That's pretty good compared to other cancer drugs. So these drugs do shrink tumors in, you know, about half of the patients who get those drugs. But on the other side, this is a glass half full, but it's also half empty. There's half of the people who get these drugs who don't have response. So if you put these two facts together, and we do in the figure in our paper, which I'm showing on the screen, what you find is that of all the patients who will die of cancer in 2018 in America, 95% will not have response from these genome-targeted drugs, okay? Only about 4.9%, 5% of people will have a response from these drugs. And I would say that just is not compatible with the rhetoric I've been hearing for years. Next, I show a figure from the supplement of our paper which plots this out year by year. Year by year, what has been the change in the percent of U.S. cancer patients eligible for and responding to these drugs? And here's what that graph shows. It is a slow, steady, flat line with a slope of half a percent per year. We are making progress, but it is a very, very slow, and there is zero evidence of exponential growth. There is no evidence of an inflection point. This is slow and steady growth. Why did people say we are taking off, reaching the inflection point, et cetera, et cetera? when the data would show slow linear growth? And the answer is probably they've never actually plotted the data. They like to use the rhetoric, but they don't like to plot the data. Now, in the paper, we actually have another category called genome-informed therapy, where you test for a mutation and you give a drug that does not act on that mutation, but perhaps upstream or downstream, or perhaps this is an important biomarker. And that will push the numbers up a little bit to maybe about 15% of people eligible for and maybe 8% benefiting. But the reason I don't like to use that is the biggest driver of that is the use of cetuximab in colorectal cancer um, and RAS. And, you know, that is not a home run drug. It is a drug with a modest survival benefit of several months, but it's not a home run drug. And it's also, I don't think, what many, many people think of as precision oncology. And it was also a drug that wasn't developed initially for a precision oncology reason. It only later found that RAS was so important. And it was developed as a very marginal drug with a one to two month survival benefit in an unselected population. But anyway, if you want to use those numbers, fine. 15%, 8%. Either way, the majority of US cancer patients are not eligible for, and they do not have tumor shrinkage from these drugs. That is in stark contrast with the rhetoric in this space. And if you disagree with me on that, then you know we're gonna have to disagree because I frankly was in many, many lectures and I know what was, what was said. Next, this is a graph I cannot show you. It is a secret graph of unpublished data, uh, but it would make my point oh so, so strong. Then I cut to a graph where I show the reduction in price of genetic sequencing superimposed on the increased use of genomic drugs, and it really shows uh, several log reduction in the cost of sequencing, but still the slow, steady growth all this time. We have not seen a commensurate inflection point in the rise of these genomically targeted drugs. And then the next slide I show, I just make the point that um, although a few of these drugs are transformative, like imatinib and CML, the majority of these drugs are not cures. Patients will relapse 
on the order of a median of some duration of response of 30 months. Let me say that to you again. If you take the duration of response of all of the drugs that are given sequentially, such as every ALK drug in a row for patients with ALK, the summed duration of the medians is 29 months. In other words, you can take all the drugs and you'll you know, get maybe three years out of it if you're an average person. And if you respond to everything, that's not bad, but that's also not good because we're talking about decades of life expectancy lost from often very young people who have cancer untimely. So I think we should celebrate what the gain has been made, um, but we should never forget that there's much, 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 much more to be accomplished. Then I show a graph that was published, a Kaplan-Meier curve that was published by the Sloan Kettering Group. And this shows patients with RAS mutations, ALK mutations, RET mutations, and ROS1 mutations and their PFS over time. And it shows very clearly that ROS1 does very, very well with a PFS of like over 20 months. And RAS does very, very poorly with a PFS of like six months. But here's the kicker. All of the patients in this plot were treated with pemetrexid. There is no crizotinib here. There is no RET inhibitor here. They're all getting pemetrexid, but ROS1, RET, and ALK are doing much more better than RAS. What does this mean? Then I show you a figure of crizotinib in ROS1 and the probability of PFS. And then my expert colleague has superimposed those two graphs, and it actually shows that ROS1 patients getting pemetrexid and ROS1 patients getting crizotinib have rather comparable PFS in two different cohorts. Okay, so what's my point here? One. You cannot do cross-trial comparisons to make solid conclusions and say something like pemetrexid is better. But you can do cross-trial comparisons to say, boy, are these in the same ballpark or are they in two different ballparks? Is crizotinib and ROS1 a parachute? Is it a game changer? Or are they roughly in the same ballpark? And looking at this, you'd have to conclude they're roughly in the same ballpark. And you would have to conclude that ROS1, RET, and ALK, while they may be predictive, what they certainly are is prognostic. Having that mutation is beneficial irrespective of what treatment you get. You do much, much better than RAS mutant patients even when you get chemotherapy. So in order to sort out is crizotinib or pemetrexid better for ROS1 patients, arguably one would need a randomized controlled trial. These data would suggest they have a comparable PFS. It is not a parachute. And the other thing that wasn't shown here is the response rate for both was like upwards of 70%. It is, equipoise has not been lost. And there's some other things I could say here, but um, I'll save that for, it's gonna scoop future work we're doing. Then I show you a pie chart of all of the patients who have early stage disease and what percent of them benefit from the use of these molecular drugs in the adjuvant space. And we have to be honest, these drugs are not working so well adjuvantly. We've had failure after failure of targeted genomic drugs in the adjuvant space like erlotinib and gefitinib in EGFR mutant positive early stage lung cancer because many of these targeted drugs do not eradicate microscopic micrometastatic disease, which is really the task required for adjuvant therapies. And in this figure, we see 97% of US cancer patients with early stage disease are not eligible for any genomic drug in the adjuvant space. So. If you want to think precision oncology includes all of the FDA-approved drugs for which you test for a gene mutation, and if so, you give the drug, and by gene mutation, I actually mean biomarker broadly because MSI high is not strictly a gene mutation, be that as it may, you will find there's some benefit here, but there is mostly hype.
Now let's shift to the basket studies. Basket studies are trials where irrespective of tissue of origin, we take all the patients with a certain mutation and we administer a drug that hits that mutation. And I show the larotrectinib trial data, which is spectacular, there's no doubt about it. But I show the table in the paper that says, what were the tumor types included? And here you see salivary gland cancer, 22%. Other soft tissue sarcoma, 20%. Infantile fibrosarcoma, 13%. Thyroid cancer, 9%. And then down at the bottom, breast cancer, 2% of patients, one person with breast cancer. What's my point here? My point is that drugging TREC fusions uh, is probably important. A fusion event is likely to be a more important genetic event than a random point mutation uh, because it is less likely to occur by chance alone in the as a casualty of a fractured genome. And thus it may be very important. But it is not equally distributed in every single tumor type. It is found preferentially in salivary gland sarcoma and infantile fibrosarcoma, rarer tumor types. It is likely to be very important to this phenotype, but will it be that important in breast cancer or prostate cancer? Will it really make much of a dent for national cancer statistics there? One may have some doubts. If you pool all the basket studies together, you will find that some basket trials included five patients with colon cancer, four patients with colon cancer in a different, three patients with colon cancer, you put that all together. Then you go by melanoma, prostate, renal cell cancer. What I wanna know is when you look at all the basket studies, how many people with colon cancer are there um, and compare that to the incidence of colon cancer. Okay, so that's what Antonius and I plot. On the x-axis, we plot the incidence per 100,000 of these tumor types. On the y-axis, we plot the number of patients in the basket trial. We perform linear regression, and we plot a one-to-one -one line. So what are we doing here? We're saying, are the patients you're enrolling in your basket trial representative of all of the tumor types that are out there in equal proportion, or do you have disproportionate representation from common tumor types or do you have disproportionate representation from rare tumor types? And the slope of the linear regression actually suggests we have disproportionate representation from rarer tumor types. Okay, that's worth noting. One possibility is that, well, people with common tumor types are put on other studies. Sure, that's a possibility. The other possibility is that these mutations, perhaps these driver mutations, are preferentially found in cancers that are rarer. That's another possibility. You have to consider that. Like Trek, perhaps these mutations are driving rare, unusual phenotypes. And perhaps, if you really want to make a substantive dent in U.S. cancer statistics, the common cancers, prostate, lung, colorectal, breast, and ovarian, may not be driven by single oncogene addictions. You may have to grapple with that possibility. I, su I suspect that possibility is probably true. Then, in the next slide, I show you, if you look across all these trials by tumor type, I show a blue and orange plot. Orange shows the non-responders, blue shows the responders, and you look at that and you say, wow, there's a little bit of blue there, that's encouraging, but there's a whole lot of orange. And in fact, there's 22% blue and 78% orange. The response rate is about 22%. Well, you might say, that's pretty good. Patients with relapse refractory tumors of diverse histology with a 20% response rate, that's not too bad. Well, then I show data from Chris Grady and colleagues from a New England Journal of Medicine paper in 2005 that looked at phase one oncology trials and relapse refractory patients from mostly the 1990s. And, they, and I just pulled out the phase one trials where we combined cytotoxic drugs with an investigational agent to say, like, what would have happened if you just given these patients like etoposide or vincristine or, or cisplatin or, so, uh, you know, some cytotoxic drug? And the answer is probably back in the 1990s, there was a response rate of 16 to 27%. So what I want to say is the patients who are fit enough and eligible for um, subsequent trials after progressing on multiple lines of therapy may 
get a 20% response rate from cytotoxic drugs. So these basket trials may not be that much better on average. It's just a thought that you have to consider. So when you look at all the basket trials, you don't see TREK inhibitors over and over again. You see some benefit, but you see a lot of hype. Finally, I talk about next generation sequencing in relapse refractory solid tumors. This is my third section. And I think this is what we're really dancing around. We're dancing around this issue. Through heavy lobbying, CMS has agreed to pay for F1CDX for all solid tumors. Um, they originally had a coverage with evidence development requirement of having a database to capture what happens to people who undergo this sequencing, but through heavy lobbying that was dropped from the final coverage guidance. So we will not get that information. This is not good. This is Medicare covering an experimental intervention. But let me take you through the data for next generation sequencing and relapse cancers. I have a slide here where I say that there are problems with the test, there are problems with the anecdotes, and there are problems with the assessment. Let me go through that. Problems with the test. I pulled several papers that were published in the literature where they looked at patients who underwent both foundation medicine and Gardent 360 sequencing. Here's what they found. If you took 56 cancer patients and you did both tests, you found 133 mutations with foundation medicine. That's not bad. You found 120 mutations with Gardent 360. It's not bad, but the problem was only 36 of those mutations were the same mutation, 17%. Okay, but you'll say one is a tissue test and one is a blood test. Maybe some mutations are in the tissue but are not circulating in the blood. Okay, fair enough. Let's look at tissue and tissue. Well, Glenn Weiss and colleagues published this in Oncotargets in 2015. They looked at two commercially available NGS tissue assays, and they sent the specimens to both. And they find that F1CDX found 11 mutations, and PCDX found five mutations, but only four were the same, or 33%. So there's some discordance when you send to different labs. And I have said before, if a reporter really wants to do some good work in this space, get a patient's tissue block from a patient who, you know, all patients have rights to their own tissue, to get, they can get the tissue block. Have a pathologist slice this block into many, many slices. Take some slides from one end and slides from the other end and send it to different companies, and let's see if they give you the same mutations. Or send them to the same company with different, different names. Uh, let's see if you get the same mutations back. And by the way, this is not a, I, I, uh, it's not, I'm not endorsing any reporter to do this, and I, and I would consult with an attorney before you do that, but that would be a very interesting thing to do. What about the drugs they recommend? So here is a study from Seattle by Nicole Cutterer and Gary Lyman, where they look at nine patients who had both foundation medicine and Garden 360, and they found that foundation medicine recommended 20 drugs, Garden 360 recommended 34 drugs, but the problem was only nine of the drugs were the same. So this is a big problem when you find different mutations and you're literally recommending different therapies based on the test you sent. Um, how precise is that? And the next slide, I show a slide of clonal selection tumor heterogeneity. It shows a, found, a founder clone undergoing mutation, and in the primary tumor, there are all of these different subclones, and then in metastasis, there's different color-coded subclones, and a different metastasis is different color-coded. And so what I wanna say is, the best case scenario explanation for these differences between tests is that you're literally finding different mutations in different pieces of the tumor. Um, one metastasis has different mutations than another part of the primary tumor. Uh, that is likely true and, and supported by many elegant studies from the UK. But what are you saying? If you give a drug that only treats a mutation found in a fraction of the metastatic burden, are you really gonna make the whole patient better off? And the answer is that's 
likely highly implausible, and that may be why so many of these drugs don't work so well. Next, I shift gear and talk about the anecdotes. I believe we have a deep, deep problem with the anecdotes. I show two papers that we've done in this space. One is a paper I did with Andre Vandross, who's coming on later this podcast we did many years ago. It's called Characteristics of Exceptional or Super Responders to Cancer Drugs. The other paper is by Go Nishikawa, Ja Lu, uh, and myself, and it's called A Comprehensive Review of Exceptional Responders to Anti-Cancer Drugs in the Biomedical Literature. These are two papers where we, at two different points in time, looked at all of the anecdotes. If you wanna look at the anecdotes, let's just look at them all. And the paper by Go, and JAW is the more recent paper and has more cases, so we're gonna start with that. So let me tell you an anecdote about the anecdotes to start, and that's how I presented it. This is a 71-year-old with anaplastic thyroid cancer who somebody wrote a case report saying that they are a super responder. And indeed, they had an ALK mutation and they got started on crizotinib and they had a six-month duration of response. Listeners will know that anaplastic thyroid cancer is a highly fatal malignancy. The median survival is something like four months. And if you get, if you have an ALK mutation and get crizotinib and have a six-month duration of response, that is something that is not uh, expected. It's better than average. Um, and, you know, somebody might want to celebrate that. But here's the kicker. That 71-year-old patient had lived two years prior to getting crizotinib with that anaplastic thyroid cancer. The patient had already outlived the median by several fold with that disease before they got crizotinib. So here's the question. Did they have a six-month response because of crizotinib? Or do they have very indolent biology and whatever drug you gave them, you would have gotten six months out of? It's hard to know. And next, I have a figure from our paper where we plot every single patient and their cumulative duration of response. And we've color-coded it. The patients who are super exceptional responders in green and orange and blue, we color-code the response to the drug that is supposedly the super drug, the drug that's causing the super response. And in gray, we color-code the response of all of the prior drugs used in that space. Okay, And the, the elegant thing about this plot, the swim lane plot, is that there is some green and there is some yellow, but there's a whole lot of gray. And some patients, the gray is the majority of the cumulative response. In other words, is this patient with this dire cancer having a super response to this molecular drug? If they've previously outlived the life expectancy of their condition several fold and always had great responses to every other drug they were given in that space. That pattern might suggest not a patient who's a super responder, but a patient with indolent or pan-sensitive cancer biology who will do well with whatever drug you give them. And what you see in this graphic is that might be true for about half the cases. And let me support that with the next figure. The next figure I show is something called the Von Hoff line. What do I mean by that? On the x-axis, we plot the progression-free survival of the prior drug, the best duration of response or best PFS of the prior drug. On the y-axis, we plot the documented length of response of the super drug. What you wanna see in this plot is a lot of dots in the upper left-hand corner, meaning they didn't do that well with the prior drug, but they did really, really well with the super drug, telling you there's something about that super drug that's different. But what you find is there are many, many dots in the lower left and many dots in the lower right, and there are dots all over the place, suggesting that some people may have different indolent biology, and that's why they're doing well no matter what you give them. And in this plot, we've shot the Von Hoff line. 
The von Hoff line is the ratio of, res of response PFS2 to PFS1 of 1.3. And it basically says that you know, a very modest cutoff would be for a drug that is a super responding drug to have a PFS 1.3 times the prior PFS. I say modest because what we really hope for is five times or eight times or 10 times the prior, but 1.3, let's just say. And if you use this cutoff, you find 49% of the dots are above the line and 51% are below the line. What does that mean? That means even when you cherry pick, you look for just the case reports of exceptional and super responder in the entire biomedical literature. You're picking the creme de la creme of the biomedical literature. And even when you do that, only 49% meet the very modest von Hoff criteria. That means that there are many case reports that are far below this. And there are all of those cases that no one's writing as case reports. And I suspect they're not writing them up, not because they're exceptional, but because they're not exceptional. In the next slide, I show a picture of uh, bone scans that have dramatic response to treatment. This is prostate cancer. And the drug is cabozantinib, which actually failed in a randomized trial, a phase three trial. So my point here is that the truth is, we should not be looking at anecdotes here because even failed drugs have great pictures. This is a drug that failed in phase three trials. The last thing I wanna talk about, problems with the assessment. The elephant in the room is that what we're really talking about with precision oncology, as I showed with empirical data from the vernacular in 2016, is the use of broad NGS or omics in tissues of diverse histology. That's what we're really talking about. That's how the vernacular is used, and that's where coverage decisions have to be made, and that's where the cutting edge is. And there are problems with our assessment of that technology, because a lot of people want us to move forward with this based on uncontrolled data or historically controlled data or inappropriately controlled data where you take people who have ROS1 and ALK and uh, RET mutations and compare them to people who have RAS mutations. But as I showed in an earlier slide, if you treat all those patients with pemetrexid, the ones with those mutations do better. So it's not because of the drug, it's because some of those mutations are favorable, they're prognostic. Okay, so problems with the assessment. How should you assess this? You need at some level randomization. You need to take people who have failed prior therapy or considering foundation medicine and randomize them to the salient question, which is, do you benefit from having your tumor sent for F1CDX or not? That's the salient public policy question. That's the question that faces the patients. And in fact, we do not yet have a randomized trial of F1CDX. The only randomized trial we have in this space is called SHIVA. It perform molecular profiling on patients, it put them in one of three pathways, and it assigned them to molecularly targeted therapy or treatment based on physician discretion. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and it was no different in any of the arms. It was a negative study. Critics look at Shiva and say, well, those drugs aren't good, and there are problems with the pathways they picked, and I could have done it better. And I say, by all means, do it better. As we talk about on this podcast, by all means, try to take Orbita and make it positive. But you must replicate it with a sham-controlled randomized trial. You must replicate this with a randomized trial of intention to sequence. One arm has the intent to be sequenced, the other arm does not. Does the universal proscription of F1CDX improve outcomes for cancer patients? That is a billion, multi-billion dollar question. Because what it surely does is it has a cost. What it surely does is it has an opportunity cost. It keeps you from taking a cytotoxic drug, presumably. What it surely does is recommend the use of off-label targeted $100,000 medications. What it doesn't surely do is improve outcomes over the alternate treatment strategy. And that is the crux of the question. Ignoring this question is only done at our peril. 
there is a story in cancer medicine of a time where based on uncontrolled, non-randomized data, we were very, very enthusiastic and we compared apples and oranges patients and we said these patients are doing a lot better than they otherwise would do. And then years later, somebody, brave investigators, did randomized trials. They actually did five of them. And although one was fraudulent, but four were not fraudulent. And the four that were not fraudulent were negative. And that story is autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer. And the lesson of that story is even when you have the best people, the most charismatic people who are proponents of something, that does not excuse you from randomization. In fact, you can learn a lot from doing the right study. In the next slide, I show my paper that was published in the Annals of Oncology called Why CMS Should Have Required a Randomized Trial Foundation Medicine Before Paying for It. In this paper, drawing upon retrospective data from Kuzrock and colleagues, I actually did the power calculations for two different versions of the trial. I basically make it easy. All you have to do is just go in that paper, look at figure one, and you've got the randomized study you need to do, okay? In the next slide, I point out that such a trial would only require one one-hundredth of all the pa patients in this country who have already undergone sequencing through MSKCC Impact, through Foundation Medicine, through a bunch of different programs and commercial providers and university centers. Um, it would be foolish not to do such a study. In the final slides, I come back to this idea of hype. I show that MD Anderson figure where all the patients get molecular profiling and every patient gets a pink, a blue, a red pill. And I point out that at the time of that writing, um, their own analysis would have suggested that only 6.4% of patients would be paired with therapy. This is Merrick Bernstam, JCO 2015. And thus the figure is at least inaccurate in showing 100% of people paired with therapy. And of course that 6.4% is up now. It's up to 25% perhaps. Um, that's fair. But at the time of the study, it was that. Um, and yet the figure looks 100%. And again, being paired with therapy is no assurance you being benefited by being paired with therapy. That's a separate question. Then I go back to the improvisational oncologist article. I read this quote from the article that um, I have difficulty reading with a straight face, but here's what it says. Was the tumor sequenced? Asked the writer. Uh, yes, there's a sequence, Raza says, as we lean towards the screen to examine it. P53D and MT3A and TET2, she read from the list of mutant genes and a deletion in chromosome 5. How about Atra? I asked. No, I'd rather try Revlimid, but at a higher dose. She's responded to it in the past, and the mutations remain the same. I have a hunch it might work. Um, there are a number of things wrong with this. I... <laughs> don't want to get into all of them because I don't want to bore you. But I think this is really not what we want in oncology. We do not want desperation oncology from a prior podcast. We do not want improvisational oncology. We want evidence-based, shared decision-making, honest oncology. That's what we want. We want data. We want information. You shouldn't tell the patient, I have a hunch this might work. You should tell the patient, for people in your situation, 40% have tumor shrinkage. We know the median improvement in survival is from X to X. You, the, the improvement in survival in the 25th percentile is this, and the 75th percentile is that. Give them some information to decide, are the side effects, toxicity, and cost worth it for them with their goals and preferences? Not just to say, I have a hunch it might work. This mutation is here. It works in a different tumor type in one person in one case report in one journal that's not good enough that's not what we want but the only thing worse than that is to say i have a hunch it might work and not even have the case report was essentially what happened when f1cdx was stripped of coverage with evidence development guidelines conclusions these are my conclusions of the this whole talk there is some benefit here you know that five percent of people who have tumor shrinkage from genome targeted therapy that's not zero percent it's going up it's going up at half a percent per year. That is good. That's progress. If I were in charge of 
all cancer budgets, I would fund precision oncology. I would fund genomic research. I would fund it more than what it's being funded right now. I would study this. But I would ensure that the people do the final assessment of these products had training and methodology, who understood evidence-based medicine, who understood the lessons of cancer medicine. I would also fund a lot of other things. I would have a broad cancer portfolio in good times and in bad times because so much of cancer biology and success is serendipity. Um, this is a field that is getting undue attention and undue funding and undue hype, uh, and it is not consistent with a rational clinical trials agenda, and there is a lot of redundancy due duplicative trials, false leads, um, and it is trying to be translated faster than the data suggests. It's, it's trying to move forward. It is certainly more bioplausible and seductive than other interventions, but merely being seductive does not mean you've proven benefit. The rules for a seductive therapy cannot be different than a therapy that is less seductive. So my conclusions. The rhetoric has outpaced reality. There are true successes here, but few. I think that we have to separate research funding from clinical funding. Sequencing and drugs should be paid for currently by research until there's proof of clinical benefit. I disagree with the rampant use of F1CDX and the off-label prescribing of drugs, these N of 1 studies that are being conducted across America with no record keeping, no reporting, no futility rules, and no patient protections. It's not how we should be doing oncology. We should be collecting this information on protocols, making sure all this data is counts and is, is optimized. Um, the purpose of doing clinical trials is that it actually allows you to answer questions with the fewest number of people exposed to experimental drugs. Just throwing things out there in the world, letting people try them for years and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work, that is a very inefficient, dangerous, and risky way to test drugs. If that were the most logical way, we would just do that for all these drugs, but we're not doing it that way. Okay, then my final takeaway points. When one talks about precision oncology, first, one must be very, very honest about what it actually means and what it doesn't mean. We are talking about something new. We weren't using this word before 2005. We were barely using it from 2005 to 2010. Let's be honest. It means the use of genomics to personalize cancer therapy. It doesn't mean castration. Charles Huggins did not prescribe precision oncology. Neither did Hippocrates. They did prescribe personalized medicine. That's something we've always done. That's why I favor the use of precision oncology. Uh, it's the same reason Harold Varmers favors that. Uh, but they didn't use genomics, okay? That's the difference. It's the use of broad genomic data. When you talk about this topic, it's okay to be enthusiastic, but you have to be an empirical person. You have to look at not just some data, but all of the data. When you look at all genome-approved cancer drugs, you find real progress. I'm not taking that away from anyone. A 50% response rate is good but it's slow and steady progress and the majority of Americans do not benefit. So, you know, put that in your, in your news story as well. When you look at the basket studies, Trek is a very exciting drug. I don't take that away from anybody, but the tumor types that were enrolled were salivary gland cancer and those sarcomas, okay? There wasn't a whole lot of prostate cancer in there. There wasn't a whole lot of breast cancer in there. Those are tumors that have huge public health burdens in this country. When you look at all the basket studies, the response rate is 20%, 20, 25%. Um, that's probably on par with what cytotoxics would do, okay? That's just the reality. Um, when you look at all the anecdotes, many anecdotes are incorrect anecdotes. Some of the super responders were people with indolent biology. So when you look at all of the data, not just some of the data, you have a more realistic and yet sober view of this topic. So on the question, is precision oncology generating patient benefit or is it just hype? I say that only a fool would say it is just hype. It is no such thing. It's a straw man. 
I see this online. Somebody said, who says precision oncology never works? No one ever said it never works. No one ever said it's just hype. What we said is you should subject yourself to the same standards of evidence as everyone else. You can't let your bioplausibility excuse you from the basic work of cancer drug development and validation. There will be some benefit here, but right now you're engaging in mostly hype. Prove that it works. Don't let bioplausibility get in the way of empiricism. That's the takeaway lesson. And follow traditional pathways of funding, which means once you prove it works, you get commercial payers to pay for it, not vice versa. Oh, well, look at that. That was the whole talk. Yeah, I think that that does summarize my feelings on this topic. I think, um, I mean, perverting the definition does bother me a great deal because that's just not a very useful thing to do. Um, if you want to debate uh, blood pressure control I'm not going to debate you. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't walk around with blood pressure 200 over 100. If you call that precision medicine, uh, the blood pressure cuff is a is a precision tool. Okay, sure. Yeah, but it's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, no one's been arguing about that. What we legitimately have questions about are whether or not every single cancer patient should undergo the broad sequencing of hundreds or hundreds of genes. Will that actually benefit those patients? Are they going in with a realistic understanding of how much it will benefit them? The last thing I want to talk about is the Moscato trial. This was a study where they took about 1,000 people who all wanted to undergo sequencing. Of the 1,000 people, maybe 900-some underwent sequencing. About 200 of them were paired with a targeted drug, and about 20 of them had a response. That's about a 2.1% response rate. Bashal and I talked about this on a prior episode of this podcast. That's not a good response rate. Of 1,000 people, 2% of them having a response, that's not that good. That's what happens when you have broad molecular profiling in patients who failed multiple lines of therapy. Um, that's not good. And yet, the narrative around this is is distorted. So, those are my thoughts, and on that very happy note, um, let's move to the interview. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Andre Vandross. Andre is a affiliate of the UCLA Medical System. He's a practicing hematologist-oncologist in community practice in Los Angeles. Andre, it's great to speak with you. Great to be back. It's great to be back, huh? <laughs> yeah, you don't believe me? <laughs> I have my doubts. Most people giving <laughs> one plenary session is the achievement of a lifetime, but here you are giving your second plenary session like a drug. If I didn't know better, I would think you're in the pocket of Big Pharma to be on the plenary <laughs> stage so often. But it's good to have you back. Awesome. Thanks. Now, we discussed a little bit beforehand what we were going to talk about today, and we had a couple of topics. And let's go right into the first one. The first one was mentorship. mentorship. Now, I've been reading a lot online. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about mentors and sponsors and coaches and advocates and facilitators and I added one, and I call it the prestidigitator. It's somebody who magically gets you to uh, where you want to be. But yeah. um, there are lots of different words used in this space, and I, I made a couple of jokes online that I felt like, um, you know, you really don't need to be focusing on all of these nuances. The real question is, are there people in your career or life who are going to help you out and go to bat for you, or are there people who just don't care? Yep. That's the fundamental distinction. Right. Yeah. It's the easiest to think of it that way. So how do you view it? Sim similarly, and actually I actually thought that I oversimplified the matter by thinking of it that way, because whenever this comes up, 
obviously I think about how I got here to where I am and it seems pretty straightforward like that and you know there were people that sort of took an interest helped me out I in turn worked hard invested um, in myself and in the relationship and to me that's what matters and the w- name that comes to mind for me and I think you are you already know this because like Mm-hmm. because you know me, um, mm-hmm. Professor Louis Leota, um, who was an organic chemistry professor in um, my co- Stonehill College where I went to get my bachelor's degree. And I was chugging along in his class and it was as simple as him coming up to me sort of saying, hey, you're a good student. You should work in my lab. And that's how everything mm-hmm. got started. It actually changed my life. Hmm. And um, and was that the moment that you, um, you say change your life, but it was really the moment that kind of put you on the path towards medical school? Uh, no, I, I was already on that path, which is why I was taking organic chemistry, eh, sort of. I because, you know, I, went, I was a biochemistry major, and mm. I knew that, I, that there were several prereqs that I needed, and organic chemistry was one of them. And actually he was very interested in me becoming a chemist (laughs) because he actually thought that I was pretty good at it. And that was something that I wasn't used to, uh, being identified academically as someone who was talented. I knew that Mm. I was right, and I was used to hearing that I wasn't actually maximizing my potential, but he was Mm -hmm. the one to sort of make me think or suggest or say that "Mm, there's a path here for you if you want it. Hmm. It wasn't necessarily related to medicine, for sure. Not from him, anyway. I see. And so I guess what I want to say here is it sounds like to me that this professor recognized something about you that you benefited from having somebody articulate that to you. You were at a moment where it really went a long way for someone to say that to you. Yeah. Would you feel that that's accurate? Absolutely. And, and so I... I certainly did not, I, you know, I just didn't have any idea. There's a lot more details that goes in, go into that, but what I would say is, is that, and that's why I say it changed my life, because he showed me a different way of looking at myself. Um, you mm-hmm. know, this added this other dimension of who I am or who I was. Hmm. Now, I, I, the reason I think about this a little more is like, you know, when, when I see people talk so much about mentorship and sponsorship and coaching and, you mm-hmm. know, what are these terms are, uh, what word would you use for what um, it seems like the right word is encouragement or uh, maybe the right word is just honesty. Uh, maybe, you know, he's just honest with himself and yourself communicating how he feels about your performance in the class. Right. So he, he was definitely honest. He encouraged but he was the, the the thing that really, really that I focused on, and when I think about mm-hmm. what happened, he was um, um, the encouragement went. Be, he had some insight, and he thought it was important that I have the tools for success because what followed was, hey, you should work in my lab. Um, the students that were doing research projects in his lab had already been selected for that year. But he mm-hmm. thought it was just important that I get in there. So I was just sort of like helping out, um, setting up some of the experiments, washing glassware. And then at the end of that experience, he said, 
you definitely you're a hard worker you definitely need to come back and actually uh come in and for with a research project then before setting up the research project he said you need to apply for grants so that was the first grant that i ever wrote uh, you know small amount of money it was actually from pfizer <laughs> um and that was where i got the money to do my research project and that continued on and then he told me you know gave me information on like you know present at the american chemical society meetings and so on and so forth so he had a very or at least when i think back on how things evolved he seemed to have a very he was very matter of fact about hey you're a good student these are the things that you can do why don't you just do them so that you can be successful and so that's that's the that's my takeaway do you think when when we see so much online um when you see here your colleagues talking about mentorship is this what people are talking about are they talking about something different uh oh that's an interesting way to ask that question hmm so i think they yes i do think that this is part of what they have in mind the conversations are a little bit more robust i see because you know obviously we have to talk about what the so if we're talking about the mentor mentee relationship if we're going to use those terms you have to talk about what the mentee has to offer and showing interest and um having an idea of where you want to go and all these boxes that you have to check if you want to be someone worthy of mentorship or at least that's (laughs) maybe that's my cynical read of how this gets discussed um, and then but I want to come back. I want to come to that in a bit. Um, but I guess the I guess maybe I'd just be more blunt about what I was driving at. What I was driving at is your your interaction sounds unique to me in the sense that the faculty member sought out the student, said you have potential. Oh. Let me make an opening here. Let me get you in. When I feel as if the majority of the discussions, it's the other way around. The students are seeking out the faculty member sure. and saying. Can I work with you? Can I work under your auspices? That sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. So I I definitely agree because, um, and that's the perception that I got when I moved on. And I, and I wonder if that's why I feel like my comparatively, the mentorship that I got after him, nothing really matched up to what I got from him later on in my career, um, even now. And so, yeah, I feel like I was encouraged to, continue to seek people out how do you how do you pick the mentor who's going to help you get to where you need to go Mm. and i will say that those kind of gestures go a long way and and i know you know this story because i think i've told you before but you know when i was in college i took an introduction to philosophy class Mm -hmm. taught by scott yoder and then he asked me uh after i submitted one of my papers uh you know i i really like your paper can i have a copy of it can i use it to show future students, like this is what I kind of I want, and uh, you know, a little gesture like that uh, went a little a really long way. And then sure. at the end of the class, you know, I'm taking a, I'm teaching another course next year. You should consider taking it. You should consider taking some more philosophy classes. And you know, all of a sudden, uh, a, a serious uh, interest was born. Um, and that kind of gesture, I think, um, you know, really goes a long way. And um, 
I, I hope I do, but I do think I do, though. Um, you know, as much as I can recognize and see students with an aptitude for not necessarily what I'm interested in, but an mm-hmm. aptitude for anything, if I see it, I, I try to articulate it. I try yeah. to say, look, you're really good at X. I mean, I'm not just saying that, you know, no one's paying me to say that. And right. you should pursue that because I do think that those kind of statements um, do go a long way. And you never know. That might be the thing that, as, as you point out, in retrospect, feels as if it was a very meaningful moment for you. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing I want to point out about you know your story is I think um, for the person in the seat, it may feel as if these things were like the driver, but it also from somebody looking at it, you know, I feel as if you probably were were destined to be successful and go to medical school anyway. You know, you were kind of down that path in my mind, but mm-hmm. maybe, but maybe this did kind of solidify the path, fuel it. Um, but let's shift gears and talk about the bad, uh, the bad side of the coin. Um, you've also had unproductive, mm, fraught, um, dissatisfying experiences seeking or 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 not receiving mentorship. What's that like? Can you talk the audience through that? So it's, it's really frustrating. And the thing I think I have to add when I talk about this is that I always had in my mind sort of set up a feeling like. We talk about imposter syndrome in general when going to professional school, mm-hmm. medical school right. in particular, feeling like you don't belong. And then I always had that sort of chip on my shoulder, being a good student, working hard, but still sort of feeling out of place, out of step, knowing that medicine is a field where many people are second generation physicians, or mm, even if they're point. not, right. maybe the, they have parents that have navigated um higher education before they have and sort of can at least give some pointers, tips, things like that. I or aunts have... and uncles in the field or friends of the parents in the field and her doctors, those sorts of things. Right. Some sort of family tie or connection. Um, and just to unpack a little bit, like what is imposter syndrome for the audience? I think it's kind of defined as this feeling as if um, I'm not good enough. I don't really belong here. Um, I'm kind of uh, I've been put in this role. I, I'm not as good as my colleagues or or people I'm working alongside. And and that's a feeling that I think is pervasive and strong. Um, mm-hmm. uh among so many people, and I think maybe many of us or most of us have felt that at some point. Yes. Um, and the other thing to point out is it's often wrong. I mean, for the most part, it is a wrong feeling. Right. Uh, it, you know, everyone else is feeling that same way, and they're probably no further along than you. You just happen to feel that way strongly. Yeah. And, and, okay, so go on. Yeah. No, and, that, and th- that's really important, too, and, and that was a learning thing for me, where so even people who have family members in the field or grew up close to the field still feel like they don't belong or someone made the wrong choice or someone was sleeping who, who dropped the ball when they were admitted, et cetera. And so those feelings are, are deep seated and, and impact everyone. And so in terms of, I don't know. I, so I brought it up because I thought that it impacted the way that I thought about going and seeking mentorship. So I would, you know, I have a lot of wet lab experience uh, mm-hmm. That was like I said. I did organic chemistry in undergrad. After college, I spent three years in a ion channel lab, um, which was mm-hmm. a very detailed experience. And then after that, mm-hmm. in medical school, a budding Roderick McKinnon. A budding oh, Roderick. yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, without the mm-hmm. two the two thousand four Nobel Prize in chemistry. Um, well, not yet. Not yet. Right. <laughs> it's not your. It's not your year. It's not your year. So, um, so oh, so. 
it, so, so always, wet lab experience you're seeking mentorship right yeah so i know that people um we had always gotten instructions on how to choose a mentor and make sure that you don't just get someone that you'd like someone that's going to push you and um, put you in a position to be successful um i still never really felt as though i got it right in terms of choosing i tried to pick projects that i was interested in and I always rested on the idea that it wasn't the outcome that was going to be the important thing, but it was the details of really do, being able to do the science, think through problems, learn how to ask questions, et cetera. Um, and so for whatever reason, even that was, I don't know, this, the supervision wasn't optimal sometimes in the lab. And if there was supervision, it would be, someone else and not necessarily the mentor, even if they weren't already sort of a high powered traveling, um, primary investigator. And so, but yeah, but then what happens to you you go down this path, you seek out some people and what you've been, you were disappointed. So yeah, I get disappointed. And then, um, I, you know, you feel like, okay, so why am I, why didn't I get a publication? Why didn't I get an abstract? Is it because I'm just not good? enough but tell tell us a little more like you know what what was it about it like how, how did the how did the relationships go without getting into specifics but like generally where did oh. it fall apart where did you feel like you oh. know the gap so, was there so yeah. honestly the relationships themselves were fine you know always collegial no one you know i've never had anyone that was um either standoffish or rude or um uh sort of like drove me hard in terms of, you know, asking things that were unreasonable. But you didn't I, have a mentor like the uh, the drum coach in Whiplash? Uh, <laughs> no, that's not my tempo. <laughs> like that's J.K. Not my Simmons? Tempo. Um, that's not so, your tempo. Yeah, you got you to turn it up. But, 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 um, but um, uh, so it wasn't that kind of, uh, no, of, of mentorship absolutely arrangement. Not. Absolutely not. Uh-huh. In fact, I had a suspicion there were multiple times that I picked mentors that I think overestimated my ability to be independent early. Mm. I really, really feel I, that I feel that it's about, you know, I, you know, every time I think about it, I was like, why did they think I was able to, you know, uh, uh, develop, um, come up with a question, uh, develop the techniques or know what techniques to use to answer the question. And I'm talking specifically in the lab, um, you know, cause there was, you know, there was one or a couple of experiences I was treated like a postdoc, you know, it's a good feeling to sort of think that right. way, but it's right. a, that's a big deal. And I, right. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Although again, I learned a lot. I learned quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, but you know what, you know, when I went on interviews and even now it's just sort of like the, the question is they want to know, they want to know what the results are. Right. So when you go and get interviewed, right. it's sort of like, cause I got that question a lot. Why didn't you get a publication? Oh, I see. I see. You feel as if uh, that was brought to your attention when you were yes. on like the interview trail or something. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Or... Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. And what did you say? You say the reason I didn't get a publication was I was pursuing science and not just the publication mill. That, yeah, I, uh, said, I, I didn't want to produce some swill. <laughs> what do you What do you tell them? <laughs> I said back to them what I understood to be the truth, which is what it was the pro- it's the process that's important. And I was actually learning how to think like a scientist. 
And right. And what annoys me about this whole situation is the kind of person asking that question should have the co- have the sense to know that that's that the publication is not the goal. The science is the goal. This is right. the, precisely the problem. Right. It's not about the product. It's about did you do work that warranted a publication? And that is as much as it has to do with how hard you work. It has to do with serendipity and things outside of your control and that's science you know sure. so they shouldn't have asked you that sure and so, and so to tie it back into what we're talking about which is we you know is is me not getting a publication a reflection on me is it a reflection on the mentorship did should i have pushed for more supervision should i have asked for a project that was more of a bite-sized chunk of what the, the the larger lab was doing to make sure that you get you know, because you know that's another thing that we talk about in terms of mentorship. I know I'm sort of you know drifting off into another part of this topic, but you know it's, it's easiest to talk about specifically in medical school. You if you're just just going to be doing a summer and then just giving of your time when you have free time throughout your time in medical school. Do you you have to get something that is actually doable? We call it doable in that like you can carry something out from beginning to end, or if not, then you're sort of finishing up something that someone else left in the in again specifically talking about in the lab or something like that. And even that to me sort of becomes borderline. Well, again, are we concerned about the process or are we concerned about the the money? Right at the end, mm. the the the, right. the the publication, so that we can put it on the application and boxes checked. Um, and and that's a fair question. But you've had mentorship relationships even worse than that, right? <laughs> where it was right. I I happen to know something, but yeah, uh, yeah, you know, know. where yeah. where where yeah, where I mean, that's what I want to get you to. Uh, yeah. The the worst case scenario where you meet with somebody and there's these conversations that meander, they go nowhere, there's no follow-up, people don't follow through, people yeah. don't meet again. Um, you know, uh, what are those experiences like? So super frustrating and yeah, so <laughs> I have the benefit or the or the curse of you know, you know me. <laughs> um, uh, so mm. yeah, so that one experience, um, come to the meeting, come to the lab meeting and, you know, just, just take it all in. We'll decide what you're going to be doing in a little bit. And then it's just keep coming. And then it finally, you know, uh, you know, there comes a point in time when you're asking, it's like, why, why are we not getting started with anything? You keep checking in and sort of saying, Oh, you know, you look at a particular, uh, project within the lab that's going on and, you know, oh, is it possible to learn more about that? Um, I try mm-hmm. to be as honest as I can with uh, the person with whom I'm seeking a mentorship relationship with. So saying, I don't know uh, about these techniques, but um, what do you recommend uh, for me to get up to speed? Um, is it possible mm-hmm. for me to jump on um, this project so that I can learn the technique, et cetera, et cetera? And so in this one particular uh, experience that, you know, that, that you suggest that I sort of talk about, it just sort of got dragged out, dragged out, and then nothing ever came of it. And, you know, it, it, and, and I was really interested in learning something new because it was an experience that was outside of the wet lab experience. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, but, yeah, it's just, I mean, frustrating is an understatement, but, the, you know, that's, it was, a, it was lesson learned for sure. 
it was one of those uh, Andre, everything you need to know is just downtown uh, right. kind of moments. It's <laughs> That's all just right. downtown, like the song, just yeah. like the song. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Listeners should know that's a reference to Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if the people will still watch Seinfeld. Um, so, okay. So I guess I want to say this. So would you say it's fair to say the characteristics that define for you the most frustrating relationships are the lack of any concrete plan, this feeling that, you know, just keep showing your face and maybe someday we'll give you a table scrap, uh, that kind of feeling. That's a not very productive relationship. No, it's not. Unless I don't want any listeners to think that because you have to address the tension of are you expecting people to hand you something? No. The answer is no. On the other hand, I respect the fact that when I'm seeking mentorship from a person who is established, they know a lot of things that I do not know. (laughs) Right. That's the whole point. Ostensibly or ideally. Right. Yeah. So I, and uh, again, when you're talking about actually developing a skill and a a skill and doing something, something concrete that I will then be able to take with me for the rest of my career. I, let me ask you this. It's yeah. No, it sounds to me like, um, go ahead. I'm just going to keep cutting you off until, <laughs> until I get to say what I'm <laughs> saying. No, We're just I, acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge that. So then it's no longer rude. But I'm going to continue. <laughs> no. Uh, but, but what I want to ask you this, I mean, what I want to pay, at least to, to flesh out a little bit is um, uh, mentor mentee relationships or whatever, you know, or this relationship working with a faculty member. I don't even, I, I, I don't even like to to get into the mentor word too much. I mean, working with a faculty member, they, I think the one thing that you would agree is that people should be upfront about, you know, what is the goal of this sure. um, project? Is the goal A, uh, as you are talking about, which is, look, um, I just kind of want to try some stuff out, see if this is a good fit. You know, I've done something different. Maybe I'd be interested in this kind of work. Yeah. Uh, option B, which I think is probably B is maybe the most common. B is um, I need to apply for X cardiology fellowship, GI fellowship. I need a publication by Y date. Mm-hmm. Can we can we get that? Can we get us there? Okay, that's B. Um, I personally don't like B, but you know we have to acknowledge that's a reality. A lot of people Absolutely. are just after B. And C, I've already decided in my heart um, that this is the right field for me. And I really want to apprentice and, and, and to learn as much as I can through kind of an apprenticeship model. Maybe that's C. And I don't know if there's a D or not, but there probably is. Sure. But the, and I actually, even though you have nicely isolated the uh, goals um, that people can have, I mean, I actually think that there should be a lot of overlap. I always thought it was strange Good. Yeah. when we... Uh, you know, during medical school and, you know, say, you know, take take going into orthopedics or something like that. And people are supposed to know before they even got there that they were going to go into orthopedics and put all this time in and, you know, doing a case report shows that you're really committed to orthopedics. And, and I'm just like, really, is that, is that really what that says? Um, when we all know, because of like all this unspoken stuff, right. Where you just said, where it's sort of like, I need to go into a, a certain specialty. Therefore I need a publication that shows that I can, get the project done and that I'm in, actually interested in the field. This is what this is what's signaling to you that I'm interested in the field. But we know that we're having these conversations too. So it's just one of these things where, and I don't know, to me, it potentially cheapens the quality of experience that one can get from a good uh, mentorship 
uh, experience. Yeah, and it's it's downright foolish, as you know, that a couple of years ago, I spent all that time with a bunch of my colleagues to do that project just to test this question. Mm-hmm. And we yes. published a couple of papers, one, I think, in the American Journal of Medicine and then in PLOS One, where we asked this question. Um, does the number of publications an IM resident has when they apply for fellowship, cardiology, GI, allergy, poem critical care, does that number of publications that they have when they apply for fellowship predict whether or not they're going to publish in the future. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things people tacitly assume or believe or talk as if they believe uh, is that it does predict, that the best predictor of doing a research career is having done a lot of research and published papers. And we found an area under the curve of like Mm 0.58, which listeners will know is about as good as a coin flip. We found it was a very poor predictor. And we've done some other work to look at grants, um, and it's the same kind of thing. It doesn't predict subsequent grants. Um, You know, what does it predict? It predicts if you construct arbitrary hoops that you want people to jump through to get fellowships, people will jump through arbitrary hoops. But don't pretend you're creating better researchers or you're doing anything good. And don't pretend you're even doing good research. You may be generating a factory of low-value case reports that no one reads. Or even worse, maybe low-value retrospective chart review, p-hacked garbage. Uh, and let's be honest, that's what some of that is, perhaps a lot of that is. Um, so. <laughs> right. But nevertheless, um, the irony of it, the meta irony is that even if we published, even as we have published, you know, good data that this is a poor predictor, it's not going to stop anyone from using it as a predictor because people believe it's a predictor despite right. the data that suggests otherwise. <laughs> so it's a, Yeah, because it's, it's one of those things, it's conventional prophecy. wisdom. It just sort of says, well, of course, if someone's been publishing a lot, they're going to continue to publish a lot. And right. um, that's... And as you know, the thing that irks me is when people don't apply principles of evidence-based medicine, which they're good at applying on the wards, but they fail to apply it for the application process. That is what really irks me. How can you how can you be so illogical in one domain uh, when you're rather rigorous in another? But anyway, back to the question. The question is mentorship, mm-hmm. bad mentorship, uh, the the things that mentees want. Now let me put let me have you articulate what do you so but one thing we'll agree is even if there's overlap and bleed we'll agree that one of the things we want um, at least there should be some upfrontness to it honesty open discussion of what the initial goal might be and yeah. an openness for maybe this will change as time goes on mm-hmm. um, uh, the second part I have is you know what do you think are the characteristics that the the person seeking faculty guidance uh, can bring to the table that are good, um, what do you think that person should be thinking about? So baseline level is um, willingness to just sort of say yes and. Yes and is obviously a concept, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but <laughs> a concept you use in, in, in uh, improv and someone says something, you say yes and then you add to the concept being presented. And so Obviously, or mm. at least I think I'm familiar that, with yeah, but I'm, yeah. I hear more yeah, buts <laughs> in my life. I don't hear yes, ands. <laughs> right. <laughs> I live a yeah, but life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I would have, I would imagine, I know that I like a lot of yes, and yeah. then again, so I consider that entry level and then um, a high level of curiosity which mm-hmm. I think improves the quality of your experience because 
oh, you know, just sort of sitting back asking for something or, you know, asking for a project or something that can be finished or completed and say, oh, I just need to make this table or et cetera, where, you know, sometimes that happens and, you know, it get to be on publication, but really sort of digging into what the overarching goal of the project is, et cetera. Um, I think curiosity will address that sort of thing. And then, I mean, honestly, I honestly want to leave it there because I don't want to, you know, you burden. don't want to, you don't want to yeah. burden somebody with sort of, again, thinking about the skill part. You can find out at the end of the project or the experience what, what you're, what you're skillful in or not, um, or what you have talent in or not. But I, I, I just think that, you know, those, those two things sort of really, really open the doors for possibilities. And and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of optimistic about the, the process and what's possible. Um, yes. Uh, ju- you know, mm-hmm. just by, just by having those two things. And I think, um, you know, I think, you, I think you hit the nail on the head where curiosity, that's a key. And, and part of what that means, I think, which, you know, I know you do. Um, but I, but I want to make transparent to the listeners is before you're going to go meet with someone, you're going to do your homework. You're probably going to maybe yeah. read a couple of their papers. You're yeah. certainly going to watch any YouTube videos if they're giving a lecture. You're going to know where they train. You're going to know what they care about. You're going to know what they're all about. Um, so at least you know that going into it so you can say, you know, is this something I'm interested in or not? I mean, it's also good for you to do that because then you can save yourself a meeting if you find that there's some disconnect between what you're interested in. Never um, a better time to be able to do background check or background mm, research mm. on somebody than today give them like you said twitter youtube what is this person talking about um right. what is their body of work um you know you may they may have uh several topics that they address um and you're only interested in um what they consider a very small part of what they do um but and then and then they might it, it's just it's a real opportunity yeah Absolutely. And, and then the other thing I want to say is, and you tell me if I'm wrong, this is what I, this is what I believe. I believe that, um, uh, the, the mentee has to also, I hate using that word, but the, you know, the, 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 the student, the trainee has to also be careful in the sense that it's real easy to get sucked in to a long time consuming process for a project that is really trivial and useless and 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 then and, and, and that wouldn't be the worst thing because all of us have spent some of our time on trivial and useless things but when you're a trainee you only have so much time to do one to learn the craft really well because you want to be a really good doctor um i mean i'm thinking more about the kind of training you and i did um mm-hmm. two you want an opportunity to read and to think and then three and i'm going to say three which i put very big you need a lot of time to spend time with your friends who are going through the training with you, which is something that listeners should know that you and I spent a great deal of time together in our third year of medical school because yeah. we would frequently finish the wards. We would drive up north to 24-hour Starbucks. We would get a nice table. We'd get some drinks, and we would study, but also have really good conversations, talk about what we experienced on the wards. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it wasn't just you and I, you know, there's some other people, Nina Kapoor, maybe from time to time, Bapu Jenna, you know, some other mm-hmm. people who yep. I don't want to name them all because they're going to probably come, they're gonna probably going to be angry with me later uh, <laughs> for being implicated. But, um, and, 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 um, and, uh, 
you know, and, and we we cannot forget that don't don't think that the only place you're getting your education is on the wards or from the textbook. You're getting your education a lot from dialogue with colleagues who are going through it with you, and that's a lot of your education. Um, oh. And I don't think we put as much of value on that. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. And then I I mean, there was a time where I erroneously thought that that was specific to the way that I had to learn because I'm glad that oh. I quickly mm-hmm. noticed that I solidified a lot of uh, concepts and other things by just continuing to talk about medicine with you and other classmates, as you say. Um, It was very, very important to me to sort of process, say things out loud. You know, I, you know, you think something makes sense one minute, then, you know, you're, you're having a discussion about it. And it's like, wait, I, I really didn't understand that. And then you can sort of talk about it some more. Someone has a different way of looking at it that actually helps solidify it in your, in your brain. To address what you mentioned about you know, spending lots of time on something that's not essentially not going to go anywhere. It's yeah, that's important because that's why I noted earlier that you know, getting something that's actually doable. It's sort of it's it's a two, I believe it's a two-headed coin because you don't want to make it about again. You don't want to necessarily make it about the product, but you want the experience to be good. So, and that actually seems to me, in my personal experience, it was really hard to identify what that looked like. Um, I know in residency when in, uh, in, at Yale's residency they had uh, have a research and re- residency program and there's actually multiple people overseeing or trying to help evaluate whether a project is actually doable in the amount of time mm-hmm. allotted um, for this uh, program. And I think that's important. So, you know, um, is it doable? Is it interesting? Um, does it give you some? Do you get something out of it? Uh, you know, actually, we're about to put out this, but listeners will have heard an episode of Plenary Session where I make a joke that we did this big project where students read every, and you actually helped out on this project, so maybe we can talk about that. Um, but we had a bunch of people who read every year of all the original articles in New England Journal of Medicine. We coded them yeah. for reversals. And mm-hmm. the point I make on the podcast is even if we had never published anything from that, even if nobody got anything out of that, that is such a great project because what did you do? You just read a year of a premier medical journal when you were a student. And you know what? Your consolation prize is you learned a heck of a lot and you're a pretty good doctor. Okay, so nice consolation prize. Uh, mm-hmm. But you don't right. get that when, right? And your project is some esoteric, you know, triviality that is not addressable. Uh, let me let me flesh this out a little bit. What really bothers me a lot is I see people come to me um, and they are like, well, I want to be, uh, you know, GI oncologist. I say, OK, that's great. Um, and then they say, well, I want to do a GI oncology project. I say, OK. And then they say, well, you know, we really don't know. This was many years ago. Uh, we really don't know if uh, full fox plus Avastin is better than full theory plus cetuximab in the front line. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, okay, okay. So I guess there's some uncertainty there. Yeah, sure. So what I want to do is I want to do a chart review of uh, of all the patients treated at our institution for the last, um, you know, a couple years, and we'll see which ones had better outcomes. And I was like, well, you know, you could do that. And uh, you wouldn't have answered the question because you would have performed a retrospective chart review of a single center where there's clearly a selection bias and prejudice among the handful of practitioners at that one center. And you will have answered nothing about this question for the larger population. And you would have done so at a tremendous price of, 
human effort. So I would advise, and it probably won't even be published well because any reviewer worth their salt would be able to point that out in about 15 seconds. So I was like, so I would probably advise you not to do that. But what I want to point out here is the idea is you have a good question. There's no one's disputing that that's a good question, but Mm -hmm. with the resources at your hand, you are unable to answer that meaningfully. And your answer is so biased, it contributes no tangible or useful information. Ergo, better to save that for another day. We don't get to answer all the questions we think of. There are lots of questions that Mm -hmm. are good questions we cannot answer with the data at hand. And so we have to ask the right question is, it's a good question, it's interesting, and you got the data to answer it. And even if the answer is what you hope or what you don't hope, either one is interesting and either way you'll learn something from doing it. Honestly, I think the biggest thing about that is that, you know, if someone comes to you and this is and this is the 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 reasoning that you take them through, lesson number one. They already got the first lesson of how to do how to pick a question. You know, what's That's actually right. doable. And it's like, no, sorry, you're gonna have to wait until you're a big wig trialist to answer this question. Mm, um, right. And if you want to answer it right, you got to you got to get the con- yeah, right, that's what I, that's what I convey. And mm-hmm. you know what around those lines, I had that idea that I know I've told you before but the listeners don't know we've talked about this. Uh, I want to have um, you know a faculty session called Research Shark Tank where you come <laughs> to the Shark Tank before you do your research and you present your idea and how you're going to do it and where you think, you know, you're going to and what what would what would you do if the results were this way, if they're that way, if they're that way? You know, take us through a few of the possibilities. Where do you plan on, you know, submitting this work? Who do you think you're going to impact? How do you think you're going to change the field? You present that before you embark on the project. And it's like, you know, it's obviously a friendly shark tank where we're all friendly sharks. But we point out the fact that, you know, okay, uh, is that the best question to ask? Uh, Is it the best way to answer it? Um, Is it really worth your time? Is there something else you could do? And how can I put it? No one is, that's what, that's one of the things that's the greatest skill particularly among people who are researcher providers. When you ask yourself, you know, you're the provider, you're the doctor, um, you're also the researcher, what do you bring to the table that other people bring? If you think you bring better statistical knowledge, you're delusional. There's somebody from statistics who knows more than you. If you think you bring better epidemiology, you're often delusional because there's some of these epidemiology sharks and they know more about confounding than you ever know. Um, If you think you bring bring, um, better basic science knowledge, I think even then you may be delusional because there are people who are basic science rock stars. What do you bring to the table nobody else brings? You bring perspective on what the question is, whether the question is worth asking and answering and how relevant the question is. That's what you bring to the table and somebody has to walk you through the thought process of developing the skill of asking good questions which are good useful important and answerable with data at hand Um, and that's what i think i want to do with research shark tank and i think that's what you're saying is lesson one i have one comment to make regarding research shark tank knowing you and knowing your work i'm almost certain that you'll be inviting farm reps uh, to these uh, sessions so that they can weigh in on what's doable and what's not. <laughs> so that they can give me their, so that they can tell me what they think is doable? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will certainly, certainly consider that. Uh, um, what about, um, okay, this is this has been interesting. I think we talked about 
the different needs of mentees. We've talked about what mentees should bring. You're very good to say you don't want to burden the mentee. They don't have to bring too much, but the one thing they do have to bring is this curiosity aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked about the people who made a difference for you um, and what it was about that uh, interaction that really resonated. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what having experienced this and thought about this, if somebody comes to you and says, I want to go to medical school, can you help me? What are, what are you going to do for that person? All right. So I've done a little bit of this um, through my college because once in a while I'll go back yeah. and speak at a second look weekend um, at Stonehill College or um that professor that I mentioned before, he'll have me back periodically to talk to students that have come to Stonehill from the high school that I went to, and a lot of them are on similar trajectories. And so the thing, the so one of the questions that I got from a parent of a, <laughs> a prospective student was that what should what would you recommend that little Johnny here major in? And I said I would not. I was like I wouldn't. <laughs> that was my answer. I said. Um, little Johnny needs to find, determine what um, he's interested in and pursue that and actually know what he's talking about when he's on his interviews. Um, uh, There's a lot of things. And so I mentioned earlier with respect to picking up actual skills when you're Mm -hmm. uh, doing a project um, and having a a, a mentor mentee relationship in your you know, one of the things you're trying to do is pick up a set of skills that you can actually carry forward. And the same thing can happen along this entire process. Um, it's a long process, um, starting with undergraduate education. You know, actually, in some circumstances, it's important to note uh, the th- things that take place before you even get to college, um, before you start to, uh, uh, heading t- uh, toward a medical career. But um, actually being interested and engaged with what you're doing, I I just don't understand. I don't think there's any substitute for that. Um, I was really interested in science. I needed to figure out, you know, I I started off as a biology major. And then when I looked at the totality of what you, of what is learned, I said, oh, well, maybe this actually, this as a whole isn't for me, but I was really interested in chemistry and molecular biology. And so I thought biochemistry ended up being more appropriate for me. Um, Mm. and so I really, really engaged with it, uh, you know, to the point where, you know, I was doing things that I never would have imagined, um, um, uh, you know, before I got into college, I was, you know, reading primary literature, uh, in in basic science and, uh, presenting it at one of our journal clubs. Um, I learned so much. I actually felt, you know, I wanted to be a biochemist. Even, you know, I was getting about, I was getting an undergraduate degree, but I wanted to walk and talk. I, w- I didn't want anyone to be able to tell the difference between, um, I wanted people to know that I actually studied the thing, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and I, 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 I just consider that very, very important. And that is what I stress with people coming to me asking how to get, you know, how to get into medical school and how to navigate this process. And then. So for this over intrusive parent who is uh, uh, a micromanaging little Johnny, even though little Johnny's a college student, Mm -hmm. uh, you would say, uh, let little Johnny find his passion is what you would say. Yeah, but I don't like the word passion, but yes. Yes, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's fine for now. And the reason why you don't, because I also tell people that is, I don't like the idea that, you know, something's going to hit you like a lightning bolt, 
you still mm-hmm. need to, I mean, if you don't have tons of interest, you have some. And so follow what those are and really throw yourself into the topic. Get some experiences that, um, that you're interested in outside of the classroom as well. Um, while I was in college, I played in a jazz band with my with a, several of my professors. I, I, that, that was the most random thing. I don't even know, you know, they were playing outside of um, the cafeteria and I happened to grow up playing the drums and there was a drum kit set up and my physics professor said, hey, you wanna play something? As if <laughs> he just assumed that, you know, I would know. And so anyway, next thing you know, I'm next thing you know, it's whiplash. It's the film whiplash. I know the plot. <laughs> so we're back there again. We're back there again. We're back there again. They were, right. he, he was much more forgiving. But anyway, I'm just using that as an example with, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're asking, you know, what, what I sort of say to people is like, you know, you're, mm-hmm. it's a whole process. It's a whole experience. You need to really, really engage with it. It can't, you have to have the end goal in mind, obviously, because that was important for me to get to where I was and where I am. But, on the other hand, really appreciate where you are, appreciate the opportunities, really try to enrich yourself. I, 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 I don't know. I can't, I don't think I can say it much better than that. I think that's well put. So, um, I think, I think we covered a lot in this topic. Um, and, uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Sure. And, uh, thanks for coming back to the plenary session stage and telling the listeners a little bit about, about mentorship when done well and when done poorly. And um, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Anytime, anytime. Have a great time again. Thanks. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, plenary session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.